So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, would you be with us this morning as we look into your word? Lord, we do pray for your presence here, for your spirit to work. Guide my words. Guide our ears as we listen. Guide our hearts as we take in your word. And guide our hands as we apply it. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. You uh, heard of, I'm sure all of us have heard of, Fathers who maybe work too much. Maybe your dad was one of these. Maybe maybe you are one of these. Maybe you've just seen it. Technically, the father hasn't left the family, but physically, maybe relationally, emotionally, he's not present. What's tricky about these kinds of situations is that the father can make it sound really admirable to others and even to himself trying to provide for my wife and my kids. I'm trying to give them a better life, maybe a better life than I had growing up. I'm trying to give them what they need to succeed in life. I'm trying to make them happy. And those things are not necessarily bad unless they come at the expense of what's most necessary. And I would argue that oftentimes in these kinds of situations, they are coming at the expense of what's most necessary. It's not surprising that countless studies that Sociologists have done, will correlate this same thing, that the absence of a father 
often means or is one of the greatest indicators of all kinds of issues later in life. And the presence of a father is one of the greatest indicators of future success and happiness for people. Even a mediocre father, they say, makes a big difference. God's gracious design gives us all hope, right, fathers? Even a mediocre father makes a huge difference. Whew! Okay, I can make a difference. No possession or position can outdo the intangible benefits of a present father that God has literally woven into the fabric of creation. Now, last week we talked about how Christ's followers are Christ's messengers, how disciples of Christ will, will proclaim that message. And we heard Jesus warn people that if they would not follow him, that there's judgment for them. And we're going to, as we go through these next few chapters of, of Luke, as we have transitioned last week in Luke 50, uh, 9.51, we saw this transition of Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem. And for the next few chapters, as he travels to Jerusalem, what we're going to see is Jesus is going around and he's saying, look, there's two things you can do. Either you can respond rightly to me, you can follow me, or judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. He's going to seal it, those two things in Jerusalem. And so as we think about this, as we think about, wow, Christ's followers or Christ's messengers, I want to follow Jesus. I want to do the things that I'm supposed to do. We can begin to think what the church needs is more doing. We need to do more doing, right? Did you hear that message that Cody preached last week? Christians we need to be trained to do stuff. We need more programs. We need more ministries. Every churchgoer needs to have a position and they can feel like they have a sense of purpose as a Christ follower and a sense of accomplishment, a sense of importance in the well-oiled church machine. Now, all these things, don't get me wrong, they can be good until we begin making to make being a Christian into doing Christian-y things. And then we, then we get it backwards, do we not? Fundamental to what we do as a church, friends, is our position as children of God. Our experience of Him. Our aim of becoming like Him, like our Father. Without that, all the doing in the world becomes meaningless. As if Luke can foresee this potential error, he immediately, he immediately shifts the story here. He follows up last week's passage with this one. You know, we might get to the end of the story of the Good Samaritan and say to ourselves, what we need to do if we're to be Christian, what we need to do is just go out and serve the needy. And there's not a problem with that, as the Good Samaritan does, but there's actually someone else's presence that's more central that we need to be in. Someone else's presence that's more vital to being a Christian that we need to be in. Do you know who it is? Do you know what is most needful for the church? The greatest need of the church is God's presence. 
That's the greatest need of the church. See, whereas in earthly terms, a single mom or a fatherless child can turn to, the heaven, to their heavenly father and to his people and find merciful help, if we as a church are not seeking God's presence, our heavenly father, where else could we turn to fill that need? There's no amount of doing that we could do. So how can we experience God's presence? What, what help can we have? Where do we need to go? Do we wait for God to show up somewhere and then drive there where God is presence is apparently? We're just out of luck. What I hope to show you this morning is this, that God has already given us two means, two primary means, two massively important, helpful God's blessing on us means for coming into and experiencing His presence. Do you know what these remarkable things are? It's the Word of God and prayer. It's the Word of God and prayer. These have been called by some the ordinary means of grace. That is to say, the ordinary way through which God blesses us with His grace and presence and, and favor. The ordinary way in which that, I'm not limiting God. God can show up in any way He wants. But if He says in His Word, here is where you'll find water, and you're thirsty, why are you going somewhere else first? If He says, look, this faucet is where you get water, and you're thirsty. Ought we not go to that faucet and drink? And he says in his word, my presence is found in my word and in prayer. Okay, first, God's presence through the word of Christ. Verses 38 through 42, we see this in the story of Mary and Martha. Martha welcomes Jesus into his house. What a privilege for Jesus to come into Martha's house and for Martha to be able to host him. Hospitality was a massive responsibility in, first, uh, in the first century, right? In, in, in Jewish culture especially. And so it be, is massively important that with someone so important as Jesus, this, this, this great man who's going around and healing and preaching and mass, masses of people are crowding him and he's come into her house of all places. What? an amazing opportunity. Of course, she's anxious about it. She's working hard to be a good host, but Mary, her sister, it's always the sibling, isn't it? Ain't doing anything. She's just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus' teaching. Mary isn't driven by a desire to avoid work, though. I don't think that Mary is like, uh, maybe she gets a bad rap sometimes, like, Mary. oh, Mary's the lazy one. I don't think Mary's lazy. I think Mary just understands what's most important. Martha's distracted by her serving. The word distracted here it literally means being pulled away to be distracted, to be overburdened. Serving is the word that we would uh, other way, otherwise be translated ministry in, in this context. 
it most likely means that Martha is distracted by preparing food, preparing a meal for Jesus and his apostles who are with him, his disciples who are with him. So Martha is so busy doing ministry. Get this, church. Martha is so busy doing ministry that she's missing the very object of the ministry, the very reason for doing ministry. And so she comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, do you not care? And the implication in this is great irritation, right? And the assumption in this phrase is that she expects that Jesus will do something about it. Jesus is going to do something in response. He's going to fix this problem that Mary's just sitting on her rear end. And I'm doing all the work. And I'm guessing in the first century, preparing a meal for 13 guys or more, it's probably a bit of work, right? Jesus responds. Listen to how he responds. He does respond, but not how Martha assumes. He says, Martha, Martha. I want you to understand that Martha, Martha, it's a caring response. It's not like, Martha, Martha. It's like, oh, sweet Martha. Precious Martha. Listen, it's not, what she's doing is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to want to be a good host or to be hospitable. It's not a bad thing to go, look, this is Jesus and his disciples, and I want to feed them. They're probably hungry from walking. It's not a bad thing. It's just not the best thing in that moment. And so Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion. It's interesting, that phrase good portion, it's idiomatic. It's idiomatic for the right meal. Literally, when he says portion, it's like a portion of food. What he's saying is, Martha, you're doing all of this work to prepare a meal, but she's picked the right meal. It's the meal that comes from me. It wasn't that Martha preparing a meal was bad. Jesus' meal is better. Jesus' meal is essential. Jesus is saying, look, I could eat food later, but what I have to give, you need now. You need now. What's the problem? Well, the problem is we get so busy being Christian that we miss Christ too often. Martha is like the person who is so busy making sure the family holiday celebration goes well or the family vacation is just perfect that they actually miss the whole reason they planned it, to be with the family, right? There was a trend a few years ago, I remember, amongst churches, the church I was a part of is pastoring at is participated in it, and the sense of it was this, it was, you know, hey, we need to have a go-be-the-church Sunday. A go-be-the-church Sunday as if gathering together, hearing God's Word preached, singing to the Lord, worshiping Him, praying together is not part of being the church. We need to get out in the community and serve, they said, that's a, and that's a good thing. We ought to do that. I we very much ought to do that. But the truth was that we could have served at any time. We could have served that evening. We could have served the next day. We could have served Saturday. 
And what was supposed to be remarkable about these Go Be the Church Sundays is that, is that we would skip our church time, our church time, to do these things for the community. But in reality, it was, I think, in retrospect, at best foolish. I don't think we understood. I don't think I understood the vital nature of what we were giving up, that this is our work of worship to God, for God, His church time, not our church time. At worst, I think it was actually not just foolish, but selfish. Let's be honest, as a pastor, I knew that I was going to have a better turnout to my service project if I put it on Sunday morning when everyone had already planned to be at church than if I put it on Saturday morning when everyone planned to be at a soccer game. People didn't want to give up another time to serve the community, so they stopped serving God in the way that He commanded them to do on His Sabbath. Heaven, heaven forbid we actually live a life in which we are servants to people all the time, 24-7. Christ. So what's the remedy? See, I think this is where that, the problem with that was, because the remedy, I think, is actually, or at least part of the remedy, a big portion of it that God has given us is actually gathering together under the Word of Christ. It's actually this right here. It ought to be. This is our weekly meal. This is the, this is the good portion that God continues to give us. We come together to feast on the Word of Christ, read, prayed, sung, preached, seen in the Lord's Supper. And we do so body and soul together because we are, as human beings, body and soul together. So this gathering, it's not just spiritual, but it's physical. Without the physical, you can't have all the spiritual. We actually have to be in one another's presence together, being in the presence of Christ, hearing His Word. And so we stop first, the first day of the week, we stop, we listen to the Lord, and we seek His presence, trusting that if we give up this day and devote it to Him, that He, as He has promised, will make the other six days more fruitful than they would have been otherwise. See, being the church is foremost gathering together in worship. When we worship, when we preach the gospel, spiritual war happens. Do you understand that when you are here together as a church and you are worshiping the Lord and you are exalting His name, spiritual war is happening. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And so the Word focuses us back on Christ like Mary, and the Word shows us how we can put our fears and our anxieties on Christ, just as Jesus was redirecting Martha to do in this passage. And actually stopping on the first day of the week and saying, no, Lord, I will reflect on you before I do anything else this week. 
even though I've got all of these stresses, even though I've got all these pressures, even though I've got all these anxieties, no, Lord, I trust you so much that you will do what you said you will do, and I will stop. I'll depend on your work. We'll worship you together. Then, then I will go into my other six days. This is transformational to becoming like Christ, just as Christ had depended on the Father in His life, so we depend on God's work. The second thing here is, is, is God's presence through the prayer of Christians. And we see this in, in, in chapter 11, verses 1 through, through 13. And the prayer here it consists of five requests, and I want you to notice that the prayer is not so much an individual prayer. It's not so much me praying this thing, but it is a corporate prayer. It says, when you, you plural, you all pray. Church, this is a prayer we pray together. And the question is, how should we pray? What should we pray to God? The answer is more robust than that. Not only do we get, find out what we should pray, but we also find out here how we ought to approach God in prayer and how God approaches us in prayer. Look at this. Here's how I want to break this down. In verses 1 through 4, we're going to find the content of the prayer. That is, the kingdom come. And then Jesus gives us two parables, two illustrations here. In verses 5 through 8, he shows us how we are to approach God in prayer. That is, the attitude of the prayer, and I'm going to call that the brazen Christian. And then he gives us another illustration in verses 9 through 11. He tells us how God approaches us in response, and I'm going to call this the promise of the Father. That is, the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the content of the prayer and I'm arguing that, the, the, that fundamentally this prayer is a prayer for God's kingdom to come on earth. That we and all of the world would see and experience the kingdom, that is, God's presence through His kingdom rule in the earth. That it would be manifest in that kingdom. And so the prayer starts like this. Father, hallowed be your name. That, that word name, it means, it's not just like the name itself, but it refers to him, to, to his reputation, to all that he said that he is and he has done. And, and, and it's a prayer that, that God would be honored and respected. If we look back at Ezekiel chapter 36, it tells us that Israel had profaned God's name. They were to be God's people, and they had gone into the land, and they had not done the things that God had called them to do, and they had profaned God's name. They'd caused it to be profaned amongst the nations, it says in Ezekiel 36. The nations were supposed to be blessed through Israel. The nations were supposed to be blessed through God's people, and yet because God's people refused to follow God, to obey God, the nations weren't blessed. In fact, the opposite happened. Instead of going to God, they turned away from Him. And so there in Ezekiel 36, what it says is that a time would come, that a time was coming when God Himself would vindicate His holiness, that He would give His people a new heart and a new spirit, putting His own spirit within them and causing them to walk in His commands. Basically, God's saying, look, you're not going to do it, I'll do it because that's how much my name matters for everyone. 
a petition for God's name to be holy is a call for him to fulfill his own promises that he promised in Ezekiel 36 and other places. That, that, that's the promise that Jesus is actually ushering in in his life. And so then it says, your kingdom come. Pray your kingdom come. And that's pretty straightforward. If we put the theme of this prayer into one phrase, that's what it would be. Your kingdom come. The church prays for God's kingdom to come, just as Jesus had preached the gospel of the kingdom. And see, for us, Jesus has ushered in that kingdom already in his life. He won the decisive battle, and yet that kingdom is not yet fully consummated. It's not yet fully in its full form until Christ returns, and until that day, that kingdom advances and grows, and that's what we pray for. Daily bread. Pray for, he, he commands them to pray, give us each day our daily bread. You know, at first reading, someone might think, well, okay, I guess quit my job, spend all day praying, and, you know, God would just, you know, rain manna from from heaven. And, I, and it does have reference to the manna reigning from heaven, for, to God's provision. But it's so much more than that. You see, the word daily here, that we translate daily, and perhaps your Bible may have a footnote. See, oftentimes, typically, actually, in, in the book of Acts especially, the word for daily, that's translated daily here, is actually means, comes to mean the, the coming day, tomorrow. But I don't think it actually has reference to like tomorrow exactly, like Monday, today's Sunday and tomorrow's Monday. I, I think what it's trying to say is, is that you ought to live today looking to and trusting God's promises for the future. It's not laziness or procrastination because, hey, trust God, right? Rather, it's acting today, working today, obeying God today according to God's promise for tomorrow. It's the realization of His reign and where it, it, it will end up eventually in kind of the mundane details of everyday life. So while there is an idea of trusting God for physical needs here, it's really about trusting God with today, with an eye on His promises for tomorrow and forever. Living on earth, if you will, with an eye towards heaven. How do I look with one eye to God's promises for forever and one eye on the thing that He's put right in front of my face today, trusting that He will give me, because I'm looking at this, He'll give me what I need for that. Forgive us our sins. Those who are forgiven are those who then forgive others, and yet it's not just presumed, it's requested because, listen, I don't know about you, but I need help with this. Oh, that we would see more and more of this kind of forgiveness in our world, in our church, and in our own hearts, right? Maybe you guys are perfectly content with how well you forgive other people, but I need some help with that oftentimes, right? May God's kingdom come there in my own heart. And finally, lead us not into temptation. This is not, I don't think this is some sort of simplistic thing here. Oh, can you keep me from some bad stuff? No, this is a request for, for significant spiritual protection. Christ's victory removed the penalty of sin for us who are in Him. Christ's victory has crushed the power of sin. We don't have to sin anymore, Christian. You don't have to sin. You don't have to. 
Christ took care of that. Your hand is not forced. But listen, Christ's victory will one day remove the presence of sin altogether. But until that day, we face trials and temptations. You must pray for God's protection in those things. And so all these prayers are for Jesus' kingdom to come in our own life and in our own world. It's a prayer of faith, a prayer of expectation. The kingdom has been ushered in. Jesus is on the throne. The kingdom advances and word and prayer are our primary weapons in that war. God's presence is absolutely necessary. Or else we'd be like soldiers running into battle with no commanding officer. Like fish in a barrel. Our approach to God's presence and His presence to us is through prayer, but it's also pictured in these two illustrations, and I want you to see that the attitude by which we ought to pray is a brazen attitude. And that sounds strange, and you go, oh gosh, but God's God, and I'm, I'm just a human, and that's true, and we should have that perspective, and yet, also, God actually commands us, Christ actually commands us to pray this way. Look at, look at what the text says. Jesus shows this, he, he describes it in this parable of a man who late at night receives a guest. Again, hospitality is so important, right? We just saw that with, with Martha, now we're seeing it again. You must have fee, food for your guests if you're going to be a, a good person in the first century uh, Jerusalem, right? In the ancient Near East. And so he goes to his neighbor to borrow three loaves. Hey, look, can you give me three loaves? I'll make you three new loaves tomorrow. But right now I've got guests. It's midnight. I don't have time to make three loaves. Could you, if you have them, could you give them to me so I could do what I ought to do? Listen, I've got great and generous neighbors. Like, like I got a little, live in my little dead-end street. I've got some great neighbors around me, great people. Um, but it's still awkward to ask to borrow something, right? And I can text message. I don't even have to see someone face to face. It's still kind of awkward to go like, oh, hey, could I borrow your blah, blah, blah? The neighbor doesn't want to upset his house, doesn't want to wake up his kids, doesn't want to have to get up out of bed, right, to loan the bread. Even, even though he's truly a friend, it says, even though he's truly a friend, he's not just some fair weather friend, he's a real friend, and yet he still won't want to give up. Yet, because of the man's impudence, he will get up and give it to him. What's impudence? It's not a word we use very much today. It's not mere persistence. It's not what the uh, uh, the word the. It's not a full meaning of what is in the Greek word here. It's it's this mix of boldness and shamelessness. Impudence. It's a mix of boldness and shamelessness. It's brazen. That's why I use the word brazen. I think that's probably a little bit more familiar to us. The man's need and desire to fulfill his duty of hospitality is so great that he has the nerve to knock on the door at midnight and ask for it without hesitation. That's brazen. It's bold. And he is not embarrassed. Because it, why? Because it would be more embarrassing for him to not have three loaves for his guests than to knock on his neighbor's door at midnight. And so he has no shame in doing so. And there's implied here an argument, what would be called an argument from lesser to greater. How much more do we need our sovereign 
and gracious Father to do anything. Do you on your own have the resources to be like Christ and obey Christ? Do you? Look, look, we, we all go, oh, no, no. No, of course not. We say that in our head, but do we actually live like that's actually the case? Or do we live like we do have the resources to do it? Should we not then be just as brazen in our approach of God? Do you not desire, need even God's kingdom to come so badly someplace in your life that at midnight you would pound on the gates of heaven begging God, please give me some bread? Think of a small child with their father. Listen, a small child knows two things. One, I really want or need something. Two, dad has a knack for coming up with stuff that I want to need. That's the two things that a small child knows. They don't know much, much anything else, but they know that. And so what do they do? They just ask. They ask and they ask again. They ask and they ask loudly, too loudly sometimes, right? Sometimes I, when my children were small, I'd give something just, to, just so that they would be quieter. Like, fine, I'll give it to you. Just shh, stop. Listen, they, they always ask. They don't always ask in the best way, but no matter what, they ask. And as they grow older, they learn to ask in better ways. And as they grow older, they learn to ask for better things. But they always ask. They always ask because it's basic to their very survival. Friends, asking God is basic to your survival as a Christian. Do you get that? Why do you not ask? Your first concern ought not to be, but I don't know how to ask right. Who cares? Just ask, God says. Jesus himself says, just ask. That's your first concern. We'll worry about the rest later. 17th century British pastor and theologian Thomas Watson, he wrote this book, this little book called Heaven Taken by Storm. And in it, he calls and instructs Christians to put forth what he calls holy violence, in pursuit of glory. This is what he says. He says, quote, Our life is military. Christ is our captain. The gospel is the banner. The graces, of which prayer is one, are our spiritual artillery, and heaven is only taken in a forcible way, he says. The kingdom advances through warfare. We're called by God to be spiritual warriors. War necessitates brazen action. If you want God's presence, you better get in the fight. You better get in the trenches and go after it, he says. He says, where there is but half a resolution of will, it is impossible to be violent for heaven. You can't, you can't half go after heaven. There's only one way to go after heaven, all the way. And then he adds, whatever is in the way to heaven, though there be a lion in the way, I will encounter it like a resolute commander that charges through the whole body of the army. The Christian is resolved. Come what will, we will have heaven. We must put forth all our strengths and call in the help of heaven to this work. 
Let's pray. How will God respond to this? How will God respond if we pray this way? What does Jesus say? Finally, we see the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. In verses 9 through 10, it says, Ask, seek, knock. Each of these commands implies that we would do them continually. Ask, continue to ask. Those in the kingdom are invited to pray and pray continually. Seek, those in the kingdom seek things of the, things of the kingdom and they do it continually. Knock, those in the kingdom want God's presence and they want it continually. Do we pray, church, like that? As I said before, do we bang on the gates of heaven? for God to grant us the bread of life for our families and for our church and for our community? Do we pray expecting that God will respond? And we're promised that there'll be a response. It says, ask and it will be given. We, 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 do we expect that what we pray for will be given an answer? It says, seek and you will find. Do we expect that when we seek the kingdom that we will find righteousness and goodness there? Do we, it says, knock and it will be opened. Do we expect that when we do so, we'll be ushered into God's presence and into His blessing. How can we be sure of this? You might say. Because I've prayed some things. It doesn't seem like God's given them to me. So how can I be sure of this? Again, we're given an argument from the lesser to the greater here. The son asks his human father for something good a fish or an egg, the human father won't give him something harmful instead. Even a pretty mediocre father won't do that. Maybe they won't give anything, but they won't trick them into opening something that will harm them. We recognize that this is generally true. And compared to Compared to our heavenly Father, we are evil. So how much more would a good and loving God give? How much more will our heavenly Father give? But then there's this surprising little turn at the very end. Did you notice this? Jesus says, the very end, how much more will the heavenly Father give what? The, the things you asked. Your daily bread. Whatever you want. No, what does it say? The Holy Spirit. Jesus specifies very particularly the best gift and promises that God will give it to all of his children. Guaranteed. God won't always give you what you want but he will always give his children what is good. And the best thing is his presence through his spirit dwelling in you. Do you even realize what you have, Christian? If you, if you hear that and you think, eh, ho-hum, you don't realize what Remember remember earlier I was talking about the prayer and God's name being holy and I was talking about Ezekiel 36 that he'd vindicate his name. God promises to put his spirit in his people and through the spirit of God in his people, 
That's how God vindicates his name throughout the earth. There's nothing bigger or more important than that. That's the original task given to Adam in the garden. That the world would be filled with the glory of God. Like the waters and the sea, right? And he does that through us. He gives us. In fact, Luke is leading up to this and if we jumped forward to Luke chapter 24, verse 49, to the very end of this entire gospel, what we would see is this. It would see, Luke says, quote, uh, Jesus, he quotes Jesus saying, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. The very presence of God resides in us, and it's the great seal of his kingdom, his own spirit. And so the greatest need of the church is God's presence without taking anything away from the things we do. And we, we, there's things we need to do in imitating Christ, from serving mercifully to showing hospitality to sharing the gospel. But what is most vital to you in all of those things, what, what you can't ever have a chance of fulfilling those things without, is the presence of God. And listen, not only is it our greatest need, but it's our greatest blessing. It's the greatest blessing to the church, God's presence, because he gives it to each of us, promised, guaranteed. Listen, God walked in the garden where Adam lived. God came to Abraham and, and promised to be with him and with his descendants and promised to Promised to him the blessing of the Spirit even. God promised his presence with the Israelites and his presence was uniquely over the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And God promised that, that one of David's sons would be on the throne and that God would be with them and be their God and he would be their people and God had already planned to send his son to walk amongst them. That Mary would sit Jesus' feet as Jesus taught her. And he promised that he would give his own spirit to reside in us. We have a good father and he has given us good promises. And you don't have to go out searching for his presence somewhere else. You don't have to beg him to spend time with you. The problem isn't that we have an absent father. The problem isn't that we have an absent father. problem is we're children who don't realize what we have. We think there's more important things to do. We don't realize that in the long run, spending time at his feet gives us the wisdom and the strength and the character and the comfort for all the tasks that he has for us. You only have to go with faith through the ordinary means of grace. things like his word and to, to things like prayer. God is there with us. Let's pray.